Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon. This is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 42 best podcasts for every sales professional in 2021. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn as one of 15 innovative sales influencers to follow in 2021. In today's episode, my guest talks about the differences between sales enablement and sales ops, but really delves into the organizational aspect of, of it and the level of of complication and how it works in favor for the buyers. My next guest is passionate about learning new things and figuring out innovative and augmentative ways to achieve goals, the shortest route to the best outcome. She has 20 plus years of experience in SaaS tech, transitioning from UK enterprise direct sales to global sales and enablement roles for two publicly listed companies. Hello and welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Erin Spencer. Thanks for having me, Janice. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I, I think it's uh, lovely to, to have you because I really want to delve into the difference between sales enablement and sales ops. Sales ops has been expanding enormously. Five years ago, we didn't know what sales ops was and it's this whole big area. So please explain the difference between the two. What a great question. And a lot of people, it's actually one of my favorite questions because a lot of people think it's just operations. They sit under sales operations. The majority of the time you lead into um, sales operations. But I think the simplest way to have it is sales operations is the what. So the things that need to happen, we've got to get from A to B or increase the sales by X percent, whatever it is. Sales enablement is the how. How are we going to do that? How do we take salespeople who were already feeling that they're doing their best to push them that a little bit more? Or how do they get that new message to the customers? Or how do they become more efficient at what they're doing? So operations tends to be the what tends to be more transactional and sales enablement tends to be more transformational. So more around the how do we get there? Okay, so how do the two work together? Does one come before the other? Do they sit next to one another? What does it, is it all under sales? Because we've now got the CROs as well. Where does sales ops happily sit within a, a sales organization? So I think that we, we do sit under the CRO, but your CRO and your, your sort of your VP of sales or, or your chief enterprise officer, they need to be best friends, right? They are coexisting. And so what would happen is the CRO will say, and the operation side will have the data. This is, you know, a moment in time, or this is historically what the traje trajectory is going to look like. This is where we need to fix. So you can identify gaps with the data, um, but operations is very much around, you know, they own Salesforce, they own all the processes, um, but the sales enablement side, which I feel it should be a balance. It should really be 50-50 because if you've got half of your team working on the what, then you need half of the team to bring the what to life and, and to, to make that happen. Um, so I, I think there should be a balance. It, for me, it should be 50-50. 
yeah. isn't always the case, really. Uh, you tend to start with a business because, you know, you usually start with your operations where you think, I need these processes, I need these systems. And then you think, ah, my sales team aren't really using these processes to the best of their ability. How do we become more efficient? And that's where you sort of have the, the birth of sales enablement, really. So where does marketing fit into this? Because there's been a lot of talk about aligning sales and marketing they've traditionally work in silos they have their own uh, vps or head of departments so how does that all fit into this scenario so if there's like when you had your best friend your chief enterprise officer and your, and your zero your next best friend we're going to go with a, a three-way best friends here um has to be your vp of marketing because the marketing tends to be driving that funnel. You know, what activities can we do? Are we doing webinars or outreaches or what is the message? You know, how are we bringing our product to the market? What should we be following? So we, we start there, um, but they need to know what those sales goals are. They need to know, is there a, based on the data, where do we have a, um, a additional spend that we could attack or which personas should we be looking at? How should we approach those personas? So I do think it's like if you have a Venn diagram, you do have your CRO, you have your um, uh, chief enterprise officer, you have your uh, chief of mar chief marketing officer. And right in the middle, you have that sales enablement where they're you know translating and communicating what the data looks like. Where should we be approaching? OK, how do we get the message to the sales team? How do they bring that message to the customer? And sometimes you have to enable some of the marketeers in terms of bringing that sales message to the customer. Sometimes, you know, they'll lead with the product, look at all the whistles and bells, but actually if we're not addressing the customer's needs, it doesn't land as well as you would have hoped. I want to ask you, why did sales get so complicated? Oh. I remember, you know, I worked in um, sales and we were still cold calling in the 1990s and it was so simple. The we good old days. And we just <laughs> followed it. It's got so complicated now. The whole structure around getting a product or service in the hands of a customer. Why have we driven or who is driving this layer upon layer of complication? Yeah, that'll be the buyer, Janice. That'll be the buyer. The buyer has become so much more sophisticated. Um, the a volume of information that's available to the buyer. So the majority of the time, the buyer has already decided what product they need. Well, firstly, what problem they need to solve, what product they need. And they can quickly Google who are the top vendors in this. So there's like a million different um leaderboards or you know magic quadrants that will tell you this vendor is the best in this particular space um and and sometimes that works out okay sometimes that works out okay but sellers where they have to be smarter not so much smarter than the buyer but they have to be able to help the buyer navigate that through that journey because there's so much information out there there's so many claims oh we do this or we're better at that and um you know with statistics i always say oh 70% of them are made up or is it 25% or whatever you know you can make a claim and you can twist the results in your favor and so buyers sometimes will go down a route, but actually they've forgotten some risks. And that's where the smart sellers, this is where the sophistication comes in. The sellers need to be aware of um, risks or pitfalls that they can navigate the, um, 
navigate the buyer around. So to avoid those risks and, and lead to a successful completion of the project. I would push back a little bit whether the buyer is driving uh, within the sales organisation this level of complication. I think that we've had MarTech for a long time and sales is moving in that direction. And this is a big money-making operation. When we think of the sales stack and the thousands and thousands of apps and platforms out there, really trying to get their product into sales organizations and offering to solve one unique problem, but there's a whole overriding different elements. And often these sales stacks don't talk to one another. And so you really, I was speaking to Mary Shea about this and, and talking about this single plane of glass that mm -hmm. everything works through. So I, I wonder, the buyer, they want, inf they want what they want when they want it, how they want it. So they want ease. They uh, want you to pick up where they left off and move, help them and guide them um, in, their, in a way that benefits them. But I don't think they've asked for, you know, a complicated system isn't always working in their favor because of the mass of operations that we've, we now have to manage this mass of sales stack that we now have. I wonder if it is the buyer that's driving that or whether it's a sales industry that's actually driving that because there is a lot of money to be made. Well, yeah, I, I think there's an argument for both sides. And I think sometimes you end up, you you just sort of wake up one morning and you're like, wow, how many systems have we got? Do you know? And because buyer A in this department has bought this and buyer B has bought something else over there. And you end up, like you said, with hundreds of different systems all doing different things. Now, of course, there are then the organizations who are sort of aggregating these different processes and you say, okay, you can get rid of those two vendors and you can just have us and we'll do these two things plus that. And then you think, okay, that would streamline, um, you know, my, my sort of buyers, but also my user experience because, you know, there's merit in just using one system for everything. That being said, uh, you know, you also want those point solutions. So I'm not sure that there is a, a total solution to it. I think some organizations will need lots of different systems. Other organizations, perhaps they can streamline. I think when we come to either buying or selling, it really needs to focus on the company goals. What is the company trying to do and how can any vendor help them achieve those goals more efficiently, maybe faster or, you know, with stronger results. And I think that's where it leans into because that's also where the money is, right? So your CEO only has money to spend on projects that will support their goals for uh, for the business or whatever that strategy might be. Any other project, there is no money available to spend on that. Why you've developed a passion for this? What is the thing that really drives you? So what really drives me is seeing other people be successful. So seeing sales reps, sales managers, sales leaders realize their potential and you can see it on their face where it's like, oh, I did this, you know, and they, they didn't realize that they were able to do that. So you're, it's like the whole sales process, you're starting at the beginning. Wow. How am I going to close this deal? 
And so for me, able to being able to coach somebody and support them in a deal and help them think through their strategy and, you know, building out that sales message, really negotiating around what our gives are in the deal, what might the buyer be thinking, just helping them evolve and become masters of their own sales process and, and become more proficient in that buying process and really just seeing that growth. That is what really just gets me up in the morning, just seeing the people that I work with develop and grow and become fantastic sellers. Becoming fantastic sellers and talking about, you know, the buyers and who's driving, um, you know, sales ops and, and the relationship it has with sales enablement. Do you think that there's been a, a shift towards customer centricity and buyer centricity for, for organizations? How do you feel we're faring um, as sellers in, in this area? I, I think people kind of sometimes fall into a sales role and then suddenly they find they're good at it. They've got a knack for it or it's like, yeah, I didn't find that easy. Some people hate it, of course, but I don't find anyone, you know, when you ask kids, what do they want to do when they grow up? Very few people will say, yeah, I want to be a salesman or I want to be a sales girl, right? Very, very few. Um, so I think it's just something that you naturally fall into. My role in sales enablement is figuring out and getting that sales rep to become consciously competent around the things they do that help them and also the things they are doing that hinder them, that they're not necessarily aware of. So you say, how did you close that deal? Well, I don't know. I just went, I did this and I did that. I, I was like, it was amazing. Um, but it's around, okay, let's break it down. Let's see what you did that really nudged that customer, that really helped them avoid risk, that really drove them. How did you take control of this deal? And then also look at some of the things that actually held you back. You know, and then in your next opportunity, let's be more consciously competent around the things that help you versus the things that you can do less of the things that are holding you back. So I think that's a really um, the goal for sales enablement with their sales reps. In terms of the buyer, the buyer wants a frictionless experience, right? They just they don't need you to bring flowers and gifts and go out for lunch. They don't need that. They actually haven't got time, especially since we live in Zoomland, right? This, you know, that time where you would walk from one meeting to the other and maybe have a coffee. Those days are gone, right? You're literally Zoom to Zoom. Um, you're Zooming around. Um, so for the customer, they just want a frictionless experience. They want their people in their organization to have a, to be able to do their job in a frictionless experience. And so I think when we're coming to, um, pitch to the customer, we've got to be able to identify doing business with us is easy. Do you know, you're, we can solve your problem. It's easy and not so much easy that it's not a sophisticated solution. It is a sophisticated solution, but we're easy to deal with. We'll look after you. We'll make sure that, you know, we're here after we've signed the contract, because for me, um, life after contract is probably the most important single feature uh, that buyers overlook all the time. I tell this story, Janice, I had been married for um, 22 years, right? And before we got married, oh, there were weekends away, there were presents, he was nice to my mother. And then, you know, as soon as you got the second ring on your finger, boom, all that stops, right? And it's the same in the sales pitch, right? During that pitch, before you sign the customer, before you sign the contract, nothing is too much trouble. I'll do anything for you, Mr. Customer. I'll take calls on the weekend. But then as soon as you move, you become a customer, when you go from prospect to customer, 
a lot of stuff changes. And so for organizations who work really hard at that after sales, that customer support, who's going to make sure you continue to be successful? Um, having buyers aware of, you know, the, the process doesn't finish when you sign the contract. Actually, we're married for a lot longer than we are courting or dating or whatever the traditional word is. Um, as I tell my husband, you know, divorce is very expensive. You don't want to go down that road. And it's the same, you know, you don't want to buy something and then have buyer's remorse afterwards or have a product that you're not going to use or worse, have a product that your um, people hate that nobody wants to use. So I think we we spend so much time and effort, you know, you rock up to the pitch, I'm wearing my best suit today. Um, but actually the focus really should be on our, our time after we get married or time after we contract. You know, I'm loving your scenarios. <laughs> but threatening your, your husband with divorce. Yes, <laughs> it's certainly a buyer motivator. Like buyer. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's brilliant getting that second ring and everything. I absolutely uh, agree with you. And I think one of the problems with this sales process, this seven-step sell, it stops at the close, which I think is a horrible world. It's a horrible, horrible world. One of my missions is to change the language in, in sales, target, hunter, close, leads. I mean, we're talking about people here. Yeah. You know, even if it's B2B, it's people and people make decisions on emotion. So why are we talking about them in an emotive way as if they're, you know, animals to be hunted? It's horrendous, <laughs> you know. So you're, um, right. you're so I, right. But close. Why do we call it close? This is an opening. This is yeah. the beginning. This is, you know, what we should be focused on. It's not the end and the handover. How many relationships are broken at that handover point? Why do we have that? So, and it's built into the process that a lot of salespeople are taught. And yeah. the way that organizations are structured, that the um, AE stops at a certain point, the hunter stops hunting at certain hands over to someone else that has to, you know, maintain that, that relationship. It is horrendous for customers. We've created this, this system. So I absolutely agree with you. And I think that there needs to be a wholesale change in that. And I think the area that you've worked a lot in SaaS has actually helped to change a lot of that because they're very much dependent on that lifetime customer and making sure that the annual contract is renewed. Um, so I don't know what your, your views are as to how we can better um, manage that process, whether there needs to be fundamental changes in this sales process. What's your experience and views? I hadn't even thought about it. You're right about the language. Even in Salesforce, you you close your deal and it's marked hashtag closed one, you know, and then we celebrate, right? So I wonder if it's how we remunerate the salespeople, right? So you you get paid at hashtag closed one, right? You you get rewarded at that point. Perhaps there should be an extension around after go live, you know, and the around the client satisfaction, your NPS scores, because um, you're absolutely right. That handover process is horrific um you know and then the customer's experience is your implementation team or the follow-up team is so why did you buy this and you're like oh, honestly i also like you get very frustrated with this which is why i focus a lot on the handover making sure that it is a frictionless experience that what we've promised 
before we contract, you know, we we uh, we deliver afterwards. So you're right. The language should definitely change for us and for the customer. So we we tend to call our closed plans our joint execution plans. Um, do you know and uh, or or ongoing project plans? So you're right. It's much nicer language. So. I don't know, maybe the language came from sort of old school sales. But, you know, when you talked earlier, oh, it's so easy. We could just do this in your closing deal. Do you know, maybe it should be just more winning customers or or persuasive communication. I'm not sure. But yes, I will sign up to your new, uh, your new lingo. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So uh, let's switch it up a little bit. And I'd love to um, learn from your experience and talk about diversity in um, B2B selling industry and whether you think it has progressed. Um, what has been your experience? What do you think needs to continue or not? Yeah, so it's actually one of my favorite topics. And recently, I actually uh, completed a, a course from the University of Texas on uh, uh, DE&IB. And the biggest eye-opener for me was around equity. I uh, went into the course thinking that I was a very open person and, you know, I'm always aware of unconscious bias because we've all got them. Um, and actually, there's a really great Harvard uh, test on unconscious bias. It's free. It's on just Google Harvard unconscious bias. And you can define what your unconscious bias is. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Believe it or not, the, the last time I did it, I have an unconscious bias towards working mothers. I am a working mother. This is like insane, right? So anyway, I digress. So doing this course um, with the University of Texas, it made me much more aware of what equity meant. And it's it's very much prior to that, I would have been like, well, we just treat everyone the same. We don't recognize any you know, whatever, race or location or accent, whatever, you know, very open to that. But actually, equity totally flipped that on its head for me. And I just wasn't aware of that. And I'm so glad that I took that course. So um, going back to your question, where does it sit in the workplace right now? I am loving... Before, before you move, what in a, what way did it flip it on, uh, on its head for you, equity? I really yeah. want to understand that. So there was actually a picture I saw, and I may have seen it on LinkedIn, but it was the difference between equality and equity. So equality is, and it had um, a picture of uh, a, a bicycle, right? This is equal. Everybody can have the same bicycle. And then the equality underneath was where there was a very tall person who who was like the the bicycle was perfect for there was a short person there was somebody in a wheelchair and i forget what the other picture was but giving the same bike to everybody wasn't going to cut it. it it fit one person but the underneath picture was around um you know a smaller bicycle an adapted one for the person in the wheelchair and stuff and i was like that was such a game changer for me it's like Right. We can't offer the same to everybody. We need to understand the differences and the requirements of all of our people. Now, that's not to say if you've got a thousand employees, you need a thousand bicycles, right? You do need to be um, putting in pockets, but actually looking at the greater needs of certain individuals, whether it's, you know, a disability, it's, it's you know, oh, will we put in a ramp? Well, that might not work for other people. You know, maybe they need a lift. So it's around really... Um, again, this conscious competence around who do we have and what do they need? 
Because if we can't meet people's needs, they're not going to help us move our business. They're not going to enjoy working for us. We're not going to get the most out of them. They're not going to want to be with us. And that's not right. And that's what I spend a lot of my time in enablement doing, making sure that we focus on equity, not equality. Great. Thank you for explaining that. I'm I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that also didn't really know the the difference. So that was brilliant. My pleasure. In the workplace, um, we spend a lot of time. Well, I spend a lot of time coaching reps around DEIB because it links to the the product that uh, that they pitch. And one of the things I find, and I love our sort of youth work uh, workers or younger workers, uh, because they are making the choices that older workers want to make. You know, you come into the workplace, you're just glad to have a job as you get older, right? You you'll do anything, you'll work anywhere. But the newer generation, I don't know whether they're millennials or whatever they're called right now, but they're saying, no, we are not going to work for you. We demand this and we demand that. I'm like, I love that. So it's really making a change. Now, I think in society, we're very much growing around DE and IB and everybody is aware of it. And you're changing how you think you're taking courses to help you understand it more. You're talking to more people to understand different points of view. You're becoming more open. But you still find in the workplace that people, I find people, a lot of organizations are uh, talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. So um, a very quick way to identify this, and, and maybe it's not right, but the way I do it is I go on the board's picture, you know, on, the, on their website, and you're like, wow, all middle-aged white men, what, what do they know about a young mother in a wheelchair, like how can they understand this unless they have been educated? And typically leaders are so busy, they don't often have the time to pause and become educated. So even myself, and I know in this conversation, I've said a whole load of things that actually aren't particularly diverse conversations or uh, diverse um, language, talking about older people or younger people or whatever. Um, I think that becoming more aware in the workplace and actually taking a step back and rather than doing it just to have it on our website or doing it just so we can say, yes, we interviewed X number of diverse candidates, um, that's not enough. You know, we need to feel, uh, enable people to feel like they belong in our workplace, enable people to feel like they want to be here and enable them to be able to bring the best of themselves to the workplace in whatever form that uh, that becomes. And I think, you know, that needs to be throughout the organization. So for me, if I was CEO, one day, if I was CEO, I would have DEIB uh, training mandatory, much more than, you know, everybody knows you have to take your computer compliance uh, training and your health and safety training. I would start with DEIB because we need to change how people think about it, that it's not a, it's not a tick box exercise. It's like sustainability. It's not a tick box exercise. If you want to get great people into your workplace if you want them to be the best versions of themselves when they're there you need to get on top of this and you need to 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 live and breathe the d and ib and and just make people feel at home and and you know you will benefit from doing it because happier employees work harder deliver more and they're nicer to work with yeah I love your passion and thank you so much for discussing uh, this with us. And I think that, you know, it is such a 
a broad subject and you've explained it uh, beautifully. So um, thank, thank you for that. And I would definitely have you as CEO. You know, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would absolutely love it. I have seen you speak and you're, you're absolutely gorgeous and funny and entertaining. And the way that you explain things, it's very, very engaging. So I would, your whole workforce would be on it. And I agree with you that um, this should be, it's all, it's all very well talking about diversity, but it's about inclusion if you want people to stay. And it should be part of everybody's onboarding and it should be something where you have in discussion groups on an annual basis so that people begin to feel comfortable. Because I've found when I go into organizations, many people are afraid to say anything in case they say the wrong thing. And as you've just said, it's okay to say the wrong thing. And that's part of developing the awareness. So rather than hide it, it's best to be open. And, and that's where you understand the, how people are thinking. And then you can challenge why they're thinking in that way. And then you can actually start to change people's thinking. Then you're going to change their behavior. But if you don't know what's going on because they're hiding it, nothing changes. So I, I want you as my CEO, most definitely. Yeah. You. You're, you're making me blush with all your kind words. I think one other really important thing that, that can leapfrog DNIB in any organization is having an open dialogue being able to ask, okay, well, what is it like to be, I don't know, I keep using in a wheelchair. What, what is it like? What does that mean for you? Touch wood. I've never been in a wheelchair. I don't know. I don't know what kind of um, biases other people who are not like me. I know what people like me experience, um, whether it's, you know, getting promoted as a woman or, or whatever it might be, um, you know, any kind of harassment, but I don't know what it's like to be other people. I also don't know what it's like, the latest complaint, and I, I, I genuinely feel sorry for middle-aged white men, right? Because they are getting it in the neck right now. Do you know, even on, uh, I'm loving at the minute, I'm not big into football, but they have so many female presenters. And uh, a lot of the male presenters are complaining. They're not getting the work because they're having to bring these women and having to bring these women in, do you know? It's, uh, it's really funny, but it's about having that open dialogue and saying to somebody, okay, share with me, talk to me around what it's like. So we have, um, in some of our all hands, we have employees come on and talk about anything. And recently we had this one lady come on and she has sickle cell disease. Now I'd heard of sickle cell disease, but I didn't know anything about it really. Um, and I could have Googled it, but I certainly didn't know how it impacted her in her job, in her day-to-day -day, and how often she has to, go to the hospital and sometimes she just can't work because she's in so much pain. I mean, that was an eye opener for me that, you know, she felt comfortable enough in our organization to share her story with us. And wow, it really made me aware of what she was going through. So I think it's that understanding of each other is to what is it like in your shoes? What kind of things can I do to help you? Or what kind of things am I doing? Is this um, conscious com competence? what am I doing that's holding you back? Or what am I doing that maybe is, is hurtful towards you or my language or whatever it might be. So I think having that open dialogue, a genuine open dialogue where people feel able, and it's not about coming, talking about, oh, you said this and I said that. It's not that. It's more around just help me understand what your life is like and help me understand what I can do better so that we can work together better and that we can enjoy, enjoy each other's company and we can help each other be the best version of ourselves.
Yeah, and we know that happy employees make happy customers, gives great customer experience, and that hits the bottom line. So it's good for everybody. We need to be um, doing this. So let me ask you, who is your hero or shero? Well, gosh, this weekend, my husband completed a uh, an Ironman, a half Ironman, and everybody is going on about how amazing he was. And I'm saying, hold on a minute. I was at every checkpoint. I dragged two kids. I made a picnic. I drove the bikes. I did this. I did that. I'm saying to her, you know, I'm the one that needs the medal. <laughs> but my all-time hero has to be Nelson Mandela. He just you know, when you read his book, or I was fortunate enough to visit Robben Island many years ago, and I still feel the weight that was on my chest when I stepped onto the island, how somebody can, um, for the good of others, go through what he went through, always for the good of others, and, and how he behaved his whole life just inspires me to not just think about myself, but think about, okay, how, how is everybody else impacted? What can I do to make it easier or better for people who are less fortunate than me or people who need a little bit of support? So Nelson Mandela for me every single time, you know, just about bringing people together and how much he was able to personify love in, in his actions and his words. He, he's just like all time hero. Oh, that's that's fascinating. Uh, fascinating in what I love watching you. I just love your your humanity. <laughs> I'm just sitting there and I'm kind of like just watching oh, you. You are very <laughs> captivating. I'm going to have you on again because I love you. In fact, tell your husband I'm just moving in. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say Janice is a much offers a much more frictionless experience. <laughs> I do tell him that. <laughs> Okay. She gives me more compliments. She's very nice <laughs> you. You're in. You've got the job, Janet. You're in. <laughs> so how can listeners get hold of you? So I'm on LinkedIn, Erin uh, Spencer, and uh, always happy to chat, always happy to share ideas, collaborate, learn from others. Um, yeah, just reach out by LinkedIn. All right. Lovely. Well, thank you, Erin Spencer, for being a wonderful guest on Scale Your Sales podcast. It was my pleasure, Janice. Thanks ever so much. And thanks for doing these podcasts. They're so useful for everybody. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.